Why does the American church need saving? And how does the American church, and indeed the global church, decenter itself from its idols? Can people in the margins of life help us achieve this? Hi, and welcome back to the God Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle, and our very special guest on the show is Eric Costanzo, a pastor and teacher from Tulsa, Oklahoma in the States. Eric is executive director for risingvillage.org, an organization with initiatives to help marginalized people become full participants in their communities. He's the author with Daniel Yang and Matthew Sorens of a new book from IVP America called Inalienable, How Marginalized Kingdom Voices Can Help Save the American Church. And uh, Eric joins me from the States now. Hi, Eric. Hello, thank you so much for having me today. Oh, look, this is a, a fascinating book, brother, and one I thoroughly enjoyed reading and very timely indeed. Now, why do you argue that the American church needs saving? Well, we, Brent, we look at um, the circumstances around us here in the States, and I think that this is true in, in a lot of Western places where the church historically has been very strong, at least in the last few centuries. We look around us and we see the declines that you read about. When people measure and and organizations measure church effectiveness and the declines and the the loss of of a lot of younger people from within congregations or commitment to church life and things like that, we see that around us, and we also see that in conversations with people who have drifted away from the church or maybe feel like they want to keep the American church even more at an arm's length. We we've identified some of the things we address in this book that people are are probably not too surprised by that folks would say we've gotten disenfranchised with the American church over some of these things. And, and so we asked the question, how do we come back to some of those core inalienable truths that the church is supposed to be built upon to, to kind of uh, take us through a cleansing process. And, um, and, and that maybe will bring about a salvation, so to speak of the American church. But it's not just the American church that's affected like this. Um, Eric, it's, um, I think the New Zealand church is as well where we are. Uh, to what extent has the American and the Western church become obsessed with power and control? I think we've fallen into some traps that have affected Christians and affected the church throughout all the centuries. We can say that the church, some of the, the periods in history where the church has thrived the most has been when it's been persecuted, but nobody really wants that persecution. And there's something to the uh, the feeling of having voices at the table where the decisions are being made, seats at that table, that maybe that's a pure motive. It's it's a, a protective element to, to help protect the church from persecution or alienation or, or not being represented well. But then there's also just kind of the age-old temptation, as we refer to it in the book, uh, even how how the the devil tried to tempt Christ you know i'll give you all the kingdoms of the world and if if you'll just bow down and worship me if we just bow down before certain idols they make these same false promises to us that we uh, that that power can be ours and comfort and security and wealth and i think a lot of what we see as sickness in the american church and as you said too in in western churches and other places too it is the result of some unholy alliances that have been made with not not the purest and biblical motives in mind. Mm. Here's a, we should mention that we've just been joined by my co-host Ian Reed. Ian, meet Eric. 
Uh, Ian is my pastor from Kings Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston, North New Zealand. Ian, I'll bring you in in a minute to get some New Zealand context on this, but I want to come back, Eric, and just ask, indeed, has, has evangelicalism in the States become synonymous with American nationalism? I mean, you've got a staggering figure in your book uh, that something like only 9% of non-Christians have a positive view of American evangelicals. Now, why is that? Well, I would certainly be interested to hear your perception on that, guys, just from uh, kind of, you know, look, looking into the United States and things you see from a distance. But I think evangelicalism, above any other form of American Christianity, is, is often mentioned in the same breath with Christian nationalism for people that use that term. Now, does that mean that every evangelical church is a bastion of Christian nationalism and that every American evangelical is also an American Christian nationalist? Absolutely not, because I pastor an evangelical church. I talk about that in the book. If I wanted to distance myself from American evangelicalism, I could not do so without being disingenuous because all of my education has been in, in evangelical settings, at least my higher education. And I pastor an evangelical Southern Baptist church, and I have passed, I've only worked in evangelical churches in my ministry career. So I'm on the inside, and to this point feel like that gives me an opportunity to still enact positive change. And my church is not a bastion of Christian nationalism, but we fight against that. We, we, we have to be really intentional in clarifying our terms, and even at times uh, navigating our national holidays that that fall on Sundays or come around a Sunday in ways that I think are right and fair. And, uh, and so um, evangelicalism, I do believe has some, some strong ties to Christian nationalism. And some of our leaders have been a, have not been helpful in helping us differentiate in between worshiping the, the God who created kingdoms and, and, and has his own inalienable kingdom and the worship of man-made kingdoms and things associated with them. And evangelicalism is, in America has been a part of that problem. Yeah, Ian, I'm going to bring you in here because we talked earlier in the interview before you came on about uh, the American church and how it's become, in Eric's view, uh, obsessed with power and control, if I can put it like that. Can you? <laughs> I mean, we've not seen this in New Zealand or Australia at all, have we, brother? Not at all. No. We definitely have, haven't we? And there's fallout going, there's fallout going on at the moment. Yeah, we've um, got, yes. yes, there is. Around Hillsong and other kind of connected networks kind of around that. that, that uh, I, you know, I found it a bit frustrating because uh, coming from Sydney and then coming and seeing it there and then seeing it elsewhere that many people have just quietly just kind of been sounding an alarm for many years saying this is not healthy and particularly the... I think it's beyond the kind of the wealth stuff. I think it's almost, the, and also the relevance. I think that's, and particularly in kind of more conservative churches, that's been the thing that's been really pushed is the our quest and desire for relevance. And it's just been so unhelpful. Like it's just, it has not been kingdom serving. It's, it's just kind of been a distraction and it's been about us rather than serving Jesus in any way. Yes, I think that's true. Eric, why is it important? Because I love the context you bring into this book about global Christianity, and you make very, very, very valid points. Why is it important to listen to voices that have always been at the margins of American Christianity, or indeed Western well, I, Christianity, if I can put it like that? Yeah, thanks for, for pointing that out, too, because we do pull in a lot of voices that 
we imagine may be unfamiliar to a lot of our readers and, and to American Christians who come from global context, but we also pull in voices that have influenced us from the margins inside the United States, where a lot of, of white evangelicals have not necessarily been impacted as much as they could by Christians of color or even women who are in their own churches. And so I think part of that, honestly, is the feeling that if there is this obsession with power and control in somewhere, some ways that's at the root of what's driving American evangelicalism, and that may not always be, like I said, the reality. It may be the perception, but in some cases, it is the reality. And we, we can see those unholy alliances uh, that have been formed. Then maybe we need to listen to some different voices for a little while. Um, I, I can give you a just a specific example in my own denomination in 2019. Um, we, uh, so I'm, my church is a part of the Southern Baptist Convention here in the States. And we got thrown right into the middle of our own public shame scandal with the revelation that there had been sexual abuse in Southern Baptist churches that leadership knew about and covered up or didn't communicate or didn't report. And, you know, things like we had seen happen in other forms of Christianity and maybe even, you know, pointed out as being evil and wrong were now being revealed in our ranks. And one of the things that I'll never forget in 2019 was a conversation uh, in a room in Washington, D.C. with a group of evangelical leaders, but it was pretty much equally men and women and white leaders and African-American leaders. And several of the ladies in that room said, if you all would have just been listening to us all along, we were trying to tell you that these, concern, these concerns were there and that these things were taking place but we weren't allowed to have a voice in the conversation. Mm. That's devastating, isn't it? Absolutely devastating. Has the American church often marginalized or have, have churches in the West often marginalized, uh, often neglected marginalized voices? I think so. When, you know, we deal with our, with some things we call uniquely American idols that aren't just present in the church. They're a part of our culture and they're part of Western culture. I mean, the, the idea of a celebrity or a star goes back to 19th century Europe. I mean, but we're always influenced here just a little, little bit behind usually what happens in Western Europe in some of these areas. And the church for a while kind of uh, American church kind of viewed celebrities with skepticism, at least back when my grandparents were, were younger. Now we have our own American Christian celebrities. And so because of that, we, we tend to elevate voices that, that we, we feel like kind of they accomplish multiple things at once. They, they are popular and they're successful in, a, in an earthly sense, but they also can speak the language of church. And I, you know, we even say something in the book that, that if a quote unquote Christian celebrity or a famous person who claims to be a Christian falls from grace, we don't go looking to more humble leadership from the margins. We want to try to find the next celebrity or athlete or person who will still be in the limelight or the spotlight, but claim Christ at the same time. And so I think, yeah, there's a, there's kind of a natural neglect of those who, who we may not think have the credentials uh, or the notoriety or the popularity, even if they have the spiritual depth and wisdom that the church needs. How can we learn from the global church and indeed from marginalized communities? One of the things that stood out the most, and you, you noticed in the book, we did some interviews mm -hmm. with a few folks who, um, I mean, we, we brought in a lot of, of excellent scholarly work from 
global Christians and others we might might consider to be marginalized voices, at least in uh, among the American church. But we did some interviews with several global Christians that are connected to us in one way or another. And one thing that they, they all had some different things to add, but one thing that was consistent with each of them was that the the American church tends to focus on individualism, even to the point of making individualism an idol. Whereas many people who live in the majority world are, or live in, in, in context where maybe there's, there's more poverty than wealth, they have a much stronger view of the community and see the church less in terms of the individual, but more in terms of, of what each person contributes to the whole. And because of that, those contexts can look a lot more like what we read in scripture, which was much more of an Eastern worldview community based and not so much based on the individual. So we, we thought that was unique that each of those folks recognized that as a potential weakness in the American church, our, our propensity towards individualism. How does the letter to the Ephesians, for example, talk about the unity of the church? You know, we, we, uh, we come back to Ephesians quite a bit, especially um, with within uh, I believe it's chapter three, and um, and talk about how what was happening in that very multicultural church was unifying Jew and Gentile as much as it was bringing, and, and that's a that's ethnicity, but it's also obviously religion, social view. It was bringing together people from different walks of life, different religious backgrounds, different social strata, and even some who had historically been seen as enemies for, from one another. And they had to learn to grow together in an environment that also uh, w- would at times be under the microscope of the, of the empire. And so th- they, they dealt with so many pressures that I think we can understand in the West, but also that multicultural, multi, multi-ethnic relationship and it's by no coincidence that that's the letter where Paul talks about uh, making sure that the wall Christ has torn down between Jew and Gentile does not get rebuilt. Mm. What sort of theological richness do you think the global church can give to us? Oh, wow. I, uh, in, our, in our chapter on how we read the Bible, uh, we, we talk about the importance of posture in approaching Scripture. That you know, you got three uh, three guys in the American evangelical world writing about the Bible. You know, we we don't have to go into a lot of detail about some of the discussions that happen in evangelical settings about whether we believe the Bible is an authority or the Word of God. I mean, I feel like we established that early on, and 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 that's kind of assumed and understood. Though it's not bad to restate it. The problem that I think a lot of of American Christians have in approaching the Bible is not being able to articulate those points about it, but the posture of coming to the Bible with humility, being teachable. And one of the things we deal with in that chapter is approaching the Bible with others and reading the Bible in community and global Christians. uh, For example, uh, uh, the well-known parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, folks uh, who come from the Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern worldview, but are, are Christians, they, they understand so many cultural elements of a story like that that often go missed unless we pull them uh, pull them out of out of good teaching in the American church. They understand the generational hostility between a group like the Jews and Samaritans. That's not just a few few generations of families that didn't like each other, but but genuinely hundreds of years of animosity. People who serve and lead in the majority world where there's global context of poverty, 
they genuinely understand the picture of the beggar sitting outside the city gate more than just the Western person who encounters that once in a while. They understand the context of a person who is starving, dying of thirst, um, truly oppressed and cut off from resources. And so for them, the Bible can easily be speaking in the present. For many American Christians, we can understand how it relates to the present, but we teach it and say in the ancient world, this was true, where many Christians in Central and South America, for example, Africa, they can read the Bible and, and say, this sounds like what we experience every day. Ian, thoughts, questions for Eric before we carry on? No, I think that, I think that um, the posture of humility in, in terms of listening to other people and their experiences is just so important. It's something that we've kind of lost, hasn't it? That, you know, we have become the kind of the masters of the, of, of the theology, you know, kind of theological world. And we, we can give to, give to everyone else without thinking that we need to listen and hear their perspectives. And, it, you know, kind of, it does come back to that, that vision in, in revelation of all of the people coming together from all of the nations, all of the tongues and tribes uh, and all speaking together uh, as God's people. And that's something I think that we're missing to our detriment, isn't it? Absolutely. One of the most fascinating discussions I had was with a, a colleague from uh, Asia a few years ago when we were discussing the book of Acts at a pastor's conference. And we were talking about the, the household baptisms and his, his perspective from an, an Asian uh, culture. He, had, he came from a culture of family and family ties. And so it, it just completely opened my eyes to a, you know, to a, a completely different way of reading these passages. But, but anyway, Eric, can I ask you, how has the church neglected the poor and vulnerable? We've talked about the poor and vulnerable in other countries, but how have we neglected the poor and vulnerable in our own communities, do you think? That's a fantastic question. We, uh, we deal with the story of the rich man and Lazarus in some detail in the chapter that, that talks about um, God's heart for the poor, the vulnerable, the oppressed. And in that parable, or, or story, whichever way, you know, some choose to look at it. Jesus clearly presents a, the, the, the poorest and, and uh, most neglected type of human being imaginable and, and a very wealthy person with an abundance of resources who is obviously intentionally walking past this person every single day in and out. And his guests are coming in and out of his estate and they're offering nothing. He's, he's, he's longing for the scraps that animals get to eat. And then in the, in the moment when the rich man eventually ends up separated from where the poor man is at Abraham's bosom and the rich man is in torment, he, he, gives, he lets on to the fact that he knows the poor man's name is Lazarus. So he knew his name. And I think that in the American church, in the Western church, in, in communities like mine, where there there is a lot of, of wealth, and, but, but wealth is relative. You know, there's a lot of wealth here in my neighborhood compared to other parts of my city. But if you compare our city to many parts of the world, there's a huge disparity. And those things are often, if not always, in front of the gates of our own eyes. Mm. We can see the suffering. We know that it's there. We know that people buy companies for billions of dollars when, when just millions of dollars would solve major global crisis in terms of water and things along those lines. We know that is the case, and we often either don't know how to address it, don't, don't consider the fact that the Bible addresses it, or we just choose to look the other way and step over 
the needy person, even in, in our own community. And so it, that's not always as simple as that, but I think we're, we, we're in a culture that not only is, has the most means in, in the history of the world, we have the most technology and the ability to see what's happening around the world clearer than anybody else has ever seen it. And yet we're, we're still, we still seem to be stepping over a lot of people who are hurting and, and in need. Yes, I think because in many parts of the church, we've become obsessed by the white middle class and uh, we are tr- we're trying to attract middle class people to our churches. And we don't want, we don't want, we don't want, as I was told by somebody, don't, don't bother with these poor people. They'll drag your ministry down. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was told. Yeah. Final question uh, or final questions, Eric, before we finish, because we could talk for hours about this. I was fascinated by the section in your book about digging into the church's backstory. And I think this is something particularly relevant that you've brought out in this. How can we deepen our roots with the historic church? That is one of my uh, my passions. And, and I'm so thankful. I don't know. I know you mentioned Daniel Yang and, and Matthew Sorens at the beginning. Uh, I am a, uh, the co-author on this mm. book with these guys. And we all, where we really found that and putting this project together, our, our, we started to get really excited was when we talked about the ancient church, the global church, and the poor. And we, we've all sort of had the experience, and I certainly even had it at times in my own education, that there's a huge gap between the end of the book of Acts, or maybe, maybe the, or, or the end of the New Testament, I should say, maybe the next couple of generations of the early church, and then basically you jump all the way to the Protestant Reformation. Yes, nothing happened in between. We know right, like, nothing, like, nothing like for a thousand years, the Holy Spirit was just on vacation and, uh, and God's redemptive work was paused. And mm. we even called times the dark ages, mm. you know, mm. uh, that's a Protestant view. Mm. That's, not a, that's not a Catholic view. It's not an Eastern view, Eastern Orthodox view. And I don't believe it's a, a Christian view mm. in, in I mean, we even have seminaries that now don't even require for a master's of divinity for someone preparing, you know, to be a teacher and leader in the church. They don't even require the section of a church history course that covers that period of over a thousand years. And yet it's an incredibly rich, an incredibly rich period of resources. I mean, you look at all those wonderful medieval Christian mystics. uh, Absolutely. And, (laughs) and, and even like for Protestants that are big on sola scriptura, how about the the groups of people who protected the written word mm. in in those thousand years? They they copied it, they translated it, they secured it, they passed it on to the point that we we have discoveries like the Dead Sea Scrolls and say, wow, that is really accurate with mm. what was preserved and passed down to us. It's 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 amazing. So I that was a I, I often say to people personally, there are three things that really blew my world open as a follower of Christ and as a minister. And the first was when I started studying the ancient languages, Hebrew and Greek. It, it, it brought my, my reading and interpretation and application of the Bible to a different level, uh, just to read it as close to the original language as possible. The second was my encounters with the global church and meeting Christians from other parts of the world who believe the same core tenets of faith I do, but in many cases practice very differently and, and, and the richness of their faith. And then the third is my digging into the ancient church and the historic church, going past the patristic period and into the uh, early, the, the Byzantine church and the, the medieval church, moving into 
what happened in uh, in Western Europe and 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 some of the healthier forms of things that happened leading up to the Reformation and during the Reformation and and after you know not not so much colonialist missions but more organic Christ-centered missions groups like the Moravians you know mm-hmm. and after the Reformation and the more I began to find these as 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 one person describes it that we quote in the book these footsteps of those who went before us that were authentic spirit-led people I just couldn't get enough of it and I found this treasure trove in the ancient church that was being neglected where I didn't for a while I didn't buy anything that was new I just kept trying to learn more from the from the the, the voices of the past that I had not been exposed to in much of my education. Mm, that's so true. Ian, final comments as we close. Questions? I just, I just think that's so important that learning from church history is just, it's so key that, you know, we just have this perspective that we are the, you know, the only generation that's ever lived out the gospel <laughs> and kind of learning from the past and things that they got wrong, you know, you know, we can point those out and learn from them, but, you know, so much that they got right and the depth of their theology kind of as well and just saying, okay, this was authentic to them. Yes, they lived it out, they lived it out differently at a different time period, but it's, it was still just so helpful kind of for us. Yes. Uh, so thanks to uh, my co-host, Ian Reed, Rido of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston, North New Zealand, and thanks to Eric Costanzo and uh, this book, this new book that he's co-authored with Daniel Yang and Matthew Sorens from IVP InterVarsity Press America is called Inalienable. We didn't come on and uh, talk about what the word inalienable means. Can we just add that at the end? That's my omission. I'm sorry. No, sure. Well, I mean, it, the, the root of that word is the word other. And inalienable really means there's no other, there's nothing that can be taken away from it. If I have something I consider to be inalienable rights, it means that those are intrinsic and, and God has given them to me and they, they, they shouldn't be taken away. And we believe that the, the, our call back to, to focus on where God's kingdom is at work reminds us that there are some inalienable parts of God's kingdom that can't be taken away. And those are the things that chart the path forward for us, not so many of these other little side discussions that seem to pull us away to the left and the right. Mm. Yes, the book is called Inalienable, uh, How Marginalized Kingdom Voices Can Help Save the American Church, and I would add probably the Western Church too. Thank you, Eric and Ian. Thank you so much for your time. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.